Well, we're, in, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And so I'd invite you to, to turn there. And before we get too far down the road, I'd like to pause and ask God to bless our time as we jump into his, her, his word and help us to, to rightly divide it and rightly apply it here together. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the day. Thanks, Lord, for this church. We give you thanks and praise for how they're supporting us, Capital Ministries, and the work appointing legislators to the Savior. Lord, I'd ask for your help as we walk through this important letter and just this small segment of this important letter. You enabled Paul to write to this church in Philippi all those years ago. Your word and truth is timeless, and we need to know it. Would you help us to apply it this morning? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, there's a reason that we're in the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, one of the things that we're doing with the legislators at the Ohio State House is we're walking through the book of Philippians verse by, by verse this year. And so uh, you're getting some of the overflow of what we've been studying and talking about with the legislators there at the State House. And so, Lord willing, the overflow will be filling for you. Well, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the author, but not him alone. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul is co-authoring this letter to this Philippian church. Um, I'm going to state the obvious. This is a real letter written to a real church, a local church, a church made up of regular people living in the first century. And while this ancient letter seems so far away, as we just dip our toe in it this morning, you'll see that it's pretty close to home. And so even if you're in your mind's eye, you can allow yourself to imagine what life in a local church family in the first century was like. I trust that, that you would allow yourself to go there. Well, it's interesting when we think about the, the context of this letter to the Philippian church, well, this Philippian church was in the ancient city of Philippi. And Philippi was essentially a retirement village of sorts for military and political leaders. You say, well, why is Paul there? Well, it was a strategic place for him to plant a church. It was, it was strategic and it was an outworking of his mission's trajectory as laid out in Acts chapter 9. You'll recall that Ananias revealed, excuse me, Jesus revealed himself to Ananias while Paul, excuse me, Saul was blinded on his way to persecute the church. Jesus uh, reveals himself to Ananias and says, hey, I want you to go to Saul. He's laid up in this inn on the road called Straight, and he's my chosen instrument to bear my name before Gentiles, the kings, and the sons of Israel. And so why was Paul in Philippi? Why did he establish 
plant a church there. Well, it was part of his missionary calling to bear the name of Jesus before political leaders, kings. This was a, a retirement village, so to speak, right on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Greece. Just a beautiful, picturesque place. It was perfect to connect the gospel of Jesus Christ to folks who had important roles within the, the Roman Empire. Acts 16 describes the beginning of this church. So if you think about modern church planting, it's kind of an interesting uh, endeavor. There are different models of church planting. Oftentimes when a church reaches a particular size, the church would say, hey, we're running out of room. We should plant a church. And one model is, hey, you know what? Let's take 20 or 30 families out of the mothership and we'll start a smaller ship. And so we'll deploy them, and Lord willing, those 20 to 30 families, they might live in a similar spot. We'll build a church around them. Well, Paul, as he was on his missionary journeys, took a different tact. He was looking for synagogues, those who already had a framework of understanding that was rooted in the Old Testament. And he was looking for synagogues so that he could connect the truth of the Messiah, who was Jesus, to their understanding of the writings of Moses. So Paul rolls into this ancient city of Philippi, and he's looking for a synagogue, but there is none. For a synagogue to be a synagogue, you had, a, you had to have a minimum of ten Jewish males. There was no synagogue, and there was not ten Jewish males. However, according to Acts 16, Paul encountered several Jewish women that were praying down by the river. Paul connects the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And then as Paul is preaching the gospel, he and Silas create a bit of a ruckus, and they are seized by the magistrates there in Philippi and thrown into prison. The Bible says after they were wrongly arrested and they were beaten and flogged, they were languishing in this ancient jail. The Bible says that they were singing praises and hymns to God. And, and at some point in the middle of the night, the, an earthquake shook the gates or the, the doors of the prison and the doors flew open and the, and the lights were out and the Philippian jailer in a panic says, Oh my word, I'm in big trouble. He pulls out his sword to kill himself because he thought that all of the prisoners had escaped and Paul's voice rang out in the night and says, Stop! Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And in Acts 16.31, the Philippian jailer asked a very important question. And it's a question that all people in all places at all times need to ask themselves he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the Bible says that he and his whole household made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized. And so this local church in Philippi began with a group of Jewish women and a Philippian jailer and his family. And so as we read this text, allow your mind to envision what these people must have been like.
Mind you, too, the modern criticism of the Bible and Orthodox Christianity, the criticism is, is that the Apostle Paul hates women. It's a patriarchal construct. The New Testament teaches doctrines that hold women down and keep them barefoot and pregnant. Isn't it interesting that Paul started a church with a group of women who were faithful and were praying? It should be noted because that flies in opposition to the modern criticism of the New Testament. Well, spoiler alert, in our time together we're going to be talking about two topics that are really related, selfishness and humility. Selfishness and humility. And so we'll begin with this question. Actually, the question is the sermon title. Are you the center of the universe? Back in the 15th century, there was a famous astronomer by the name of Nicholas Copernicum. Excuse me, Copernicus. And old Nicholas in studying the universe as an astronomer, made an astounding discovery. His discovery was that the earth and the celestial bodies within the Milky Way actually revolved around the sun. And that was a radical new way of thinking about the universe. Because up until that time, everybody thought that the sun and the stars and the universe revolved around the earth. This blew the circuit breakers in the minds of people. This caused what was known as the Copernican Revolution. It was a revolutionary, a radical new way of thinking. In the 20th century, there was a uh, psychologist by the name of Jean Piaget, Piaget, I believe that's how you say his name, a French, or excuse me, a Swiss psychologist who studied children. And he made the statement that every child must have a Copernicus-like revolution in their own thinking. Meaning that children have to discover that the universe does not revolve around them. Meaning that walls do not move when they run and play. You ever seen a kid run into a wall? We call those viral moments these days. The floor does not become soft when you fall. And cars do not stop when you want to run out and play. Not everyone wants to give you their toys to play. Just ask the fine folks who are serving in the nursery and toddler area this morning. There's great selfishness that is taking place in this place today. To be a children's worker, you must also be a referee. You're actually realigning the worldview of toddlers. Some might say that pastoral ministry is a similar endeavor. Realigning the worldview and the perspective of others. Did you know that the universe does not revolve around you either? I don't think I have to convince anyone in here this morning that we all struggle with selfishness at some level. This morning, 
I knew that I was preaching on Philippians chapter 2. I knew that I was preaching on selfishness and humility. And wouldn't you know it, when we pulled into the parking lot of Dunkin' Donuts to grab a coffee and some breakfast on our way up here this morning, that the line was 14 cars deep. Don't those folks know that they need to get out of the way and let us get right to the front of the line? I mean, we had a place to go. Don't these people know how important I am? Oh, and then we merged on to 68 North, and we're driving. Wouldn't you know it, we get behind some of the slowest moving cars on the face of the planet. Who knew that Logan County and Champaign County had some of the slowest drivers around? (sighs) Tell ya. And it got worse. So from Urbana to West Liberty, I got behind a car. And they just wouldn't speed up. They wouldn't go. And the whole time I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to be late. I'd like to be there a little bit early. Wouldn't this car get out of my way? Well, as time went along, that car pulled into the parking lot of Grace Chapel Church. <laughs> so if you, drive, if you drive a maroon Honda Pilot, my apologies. And the Lord was pressing in on my heart all morning long. Chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We live in a self-centered world. We live in an egocentric culture. And nothing says me first better than a good old-fashioned selfie. Did you know that worldwide there are 94 million selfies taken every day? 94 million selfies taken every day. We like ourselves a lot. There are entire... uh, apps on your mobile devices that will actually facilitate the taking of optimal selfies at just the right times, 
at just the right angle so that you can highlight your best features. There are devices that go along with your devices so that you can take the best selfies. We call those selfie sticks. You can telescope it out so you can just get the right angle there. Oftentimes men will flex for their selfie. And ladies, ladies, typically the selfie's the same. Kind of got a hand on the hip, kind of a pouty lip, kind of duck, duck lips sort of. In 2015, you might be surprised to know that there were more deaths by selfies than there were shark attacks globally. It's a precarious thing to take a selfie. Close to oncoming traffic, maybe a little too close to a cliff edge, people literally died a lot in 2015 in taking selfies. Selfishness is dangerous. I think I need to tell you that. Paul, here in Philippians 2, is making a case that we all need a Copernicus-like revolution in our own thinking. You see, as a follower of Jesus, we do not add Jesus into the orbit of our lives. No, we are invited into the orbit of his. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we struggle with a functional pantheism where we just incorporate Jesus as one of many gods. I'm going to continue to live my life however I want to live it. I'm just going to sprinkle Jesus in. What a dangerous way to do life. And what a miscarriage it is to the cross of Jesus Christ in the gospel message itself. You know, Jesus is the center of the universe. Well, I love this letter of Philippians. There are so many quotable things in this passage, or excuse me, in this letter. In chapter 1, it's, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He talks about his affection for the Philippian church in verses 9 to 11. He talks about how he prays for them. He says, and this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, do do all things without arguing or complaining. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, Paul says that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Not that I want him to know how awesome I am. Philippians 4.13, one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible, taken out of context. We hear it on Super Bowl Sunday and NBA playoffs. Hey, I can, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, including winning the NBA MVP race. Philippians 4, 4 verses, excuse me, uh, yeah, 4 verse. Verses 4 to 8, be anxious for nothing but in all things by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. We are to present our requests to the Lord and the God of peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
So all that Paul is talking about in this letter is a reminder to the Christian church in Philippi that he, Jesus, is the center of the universe. Not you and not me. When Naomi and I were first married, I was uh, committed to being the kind of husband that God wanted me to be. And often, uh, early on, I would crawl into bed and Naomi would be doing some other things and then she'd come to bed too. And, then, and we'd be laying there for about three minutes or so and she'd say, hey, sweetheart, can you grab me a glass of water? Oh, sure, yeah. Hop up, get her a glass of water and come back. This happened frequently. Then I got to thinking... Hey, wait a second. I've been in bed already. She was the last one up. Why didn't she grab a glass of water on her way to bed? All of a sudden, I began to think, man, I don't like this arrangement very much. And so a couple days later, we're in our two-bedroom apartment in Cedarville, and Naomi's sitting in the chair in her living room, and I just started walking around the chair. I was tapping into my inner middle schooler. Started walking around the chair. I said, what are you doing? It's like, well, since the world revolves around you, I'm just in training. So I'm just warming up here. I don't recommend you husbands doing that. Some of us learn the hard way. The universe does not revolve around us. Paul is calling us to a radical new way of thinking. Well, this text actually shows us three marks of selfless living. If selfishness is opposite of gospel living, then selflessness is what God wants us to and is calling us to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'll turn your attention specifically to verse 3. And in verse 3 we see two negative do's and one positive do. Three things that help us live selflessly. First one is don't live selfishly. Say, wow, thanks, Captain Obvious. Appreciate that. It's very clear here. Verse 3, chapter 2 do nothing, do nothing. Hmm. I wonder if there's any wiggle room there. Do nothing from rivalry or selfishness. That's what the New American Standard would use. Do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is the self-seeking advantage over others regardless of the effect on others. Aristotle once said that selfishness is the unfair pursuit and self-seeking ambition of politicians. Boy, that worked really well at the State House. This picture, I think I've shown it here before. This picture is a living memorial for me. It communicates Matthew chapter 7 the foolish man and the wise man. The wise man built his house on the rock, the foolish man built a beach house, and great was its fall. This passage also is a reminder to me of what it looks like to be selfless and selfish. So the man on the left side of the screen here is former Speaker of the Ohio House, Larry Householder. Uh, On this particular day, I was invited 
to pray in the Ohio House, to open session. I was introduced by the man on the far right, who is Representative Daryl Kick. He's a sixth-generation dairy farmer up north uh, of Columbus a little ways. Um, he's the only guy that I know of serving in the Ohio State House that does not have a college degree, and he probably has more sense than anybody I know there. Loves Jesus, faithfully serves him, and points others toward him. Well, on this particular day, I prayed in the, in the house, and I prayed the essence of Philippians chapter 2, that none of the members would, would, uh, would be filled with any sort of selfishness or vain conceit, that, that none of them would seek to exalt their own ambition over others. And when I watched that prayer back on, in the prayer archives, uh, the man on the left, Larry Householder, he was praying like this as I was praying. And when I said, Lord, help these members uh, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, help them to esteem the needs of others higher than themselves, he goes like this, and he goes right back down to praying again. Even then, I think the God, that God was pressing in on his heart. For just uh, several weeks after this moment here, the FBI raided his, his office, and he was eventually indicted uh, on bribery charges to the tune of $60 million and is currently serving a 20-year sentence. Aristotle was right. That selfishness is the unfair pursuit and self-seeking ambition of not just politicians, though. It's the self-seeking ambition of teenagers. It's the self self-seeking ambition of parents watching their kids play basketball at AAU tournaments or high school track meets. Selfishness knows no bounds or it's part of our depravity and you and I struggle with this. Selfishness is the advancement of self by any and all means. Immanuel Kant, the Enlightenment thinker, he, uh, he coined the phrase that, uh, uh, the, the phrase was, uh, the, the end justifies the means. Selfishness certainly fits into there. The end justifies the means. So the first don't in the negative is don't live selfishly. The second don't is don't be prideful. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. One pastor told a, uh, 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 an interesting, funny quip in one of his sermons as he was preaching on Philippians chapter 2 and he told the story about a, a mom who was fixing breakfast for her two sons and, and the two sons were fighting over who was going to get the first pancake. And they were squabbling, and the, and the mom finally cuts in and says, you know, boys, if Jesus were here, he'd tell you to allow your brother to have the first pancake. And the older brother, not missing a beat, tells his younger brother, you be Jesus. <laughs> Another pastor pointed out that there's two ways to enter into a room. When you arrive at a place, walk into the room, you can announce yourself to the room by saying, here I am, and you strut your stuff, 
and you're announcing that I'm here. It's the first way of entering in a room. I'm here. Second way of entering into a room is by saying, oh, there you are. Well, that's different. The proud says, I'm here, and the humble, or the one walking in humility, would say, oh, there you are. I think if the church of Jesus Christ showed up at their local church with that second way of entering into their church, their corporate worship service, by saying, oh, there you are, things would go well. For James says, hey, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it because you want something and you're not getting it? That sounds a lot like selfishness. What causes fights and quarrels in local churches? Isn't it because somebody wants something and they're not getting it and their desires are in conflict with another's? What causes fights and quarrels within families? Isn't it because somebody wants the first pancake and they're not getting it? Or the remote control? Or shotgun? Or first shot in the bathroom? Or whatever? What causes fights and quarrels among husbands and wives? Is it because one wants something and isn't getting it? What causes fights and quarrels in the business place, in the workplace? Isn't it because the employee wants something and the employer wants something else and neither one are getting it? What causes fights and quarrels in Congress? Selfishness. Pride. Oh, by the way, pride, that's the thing that got Satan kicked out of heaven, wasn't it? So I think we can hit the time out here and say there's nothing more Christ-like than to be humble. There's nothing more like Satan than to be prideful. Third, be humble. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but, be, but in humility count others more significant as yourselves. Be humble. Nikola Jokic is the uh, center for the, uh, my favorite, Denver Nuggets. They've just made it into the NBA Finals, and I'm excited. Jokic gets no airtime on the networks here in the Midwest. Uh, the games always start too late on the West, but he has a totally different style of playing that is uh, really radical to NBA thinkers. They, uh, he is uh, six foot eleven, but he handles the ball like a point guard. Through the NBA playoffs, he's averaging a thirty-point triple-double meaning his, his assists are in double figures every game. It's an amazing thing. The NBA has not seen a passing big man like this since the days of Wilt Chamberlain. It's totally different. And he doesn't even like to score first. He likes to pass. He likes to give assists. And he's quoted as saying is that a point makes you happy, but an assist makes you and your teammate happy. Assists make two people happy. He's discovered that giving the ball away to his teammates has led to great success and they're rolling in the playoffs. Humility. A little bit of humility is making a huge difference in the NBA right now that is defined by a culture of selfish athletes. 
The paradoxical pathway to exaltation is found in verses 9 to 11. Paul says that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus exemplifies the pathway to exaltation. To the degree that you and I will be successful in this life is to the degree that we will be Christ-like which also means that we're going to suffer, that we'll have difficulty, that we'll have challenges. Paul is warning them of that. But Jesus did too. In the Beatitudes, just after the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, five Jesus says, you, Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, who say all sorts of bad things about it. It's coming. Beware. Embracing me as Savior is not a ticket onto the cruise ship to the kingdom. It's going to be hard. Be ready for it. But the pathway to exaltation is through humility. And that's every bit as true at home as it is at the state house. Skipped a point, and I'm sorry for that, but uh, we skipped Are You Worthy? We're running out of time. If you were to go back into chapter 1 of verse 27, Paul asks the question or makes the statement that we're to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of that. That first word in chapter 2 is so or therefore. Paul is connecting everything in chapter 2 to the statement that he makes at the end of chapter 1 that we are to walk worthy. Our lives should should be lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? That's a good thing to do. I kind of like nice people. I mean, don't you like to be around selfless people? I mean, you kind of always get your way. It's awesome. So you can be a blessing to people. Is, is that why? If we were to look ahead in chapter 2, Paul in verse 12 gives another therefore. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why do we put on humility? Because the world is watching. And as you reflect the glory of Jesus Christ to the world, who desperately needs to know Jesus as Savior, we advance the kingdom. We as a church are on mission. We are about the business of making Christ followers of all people. We are advancing His great name, not ours. And so as John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that He might increase. Friends, you and I are not the center of the universe. And that's okay. That's more than okay. For the Son of God, Jesus, is the center of our universe. 
Now, some of you are going to leave here and say, wow, we, we just walked through Philippians chapter 2, and that pastor didn't even talk about the kenosis, Jesus setting aside certain elements of his deity to model humility. You're right, you're right. For this passage is not just practical, it's deeply theological. And it's worth your study. So hopefully in our time this morning, it's whet your appetite to dive more into God's word this week. Friends, let's be on mission. And we are on mission for kingdom expanding work in the places that God has taken you when we do life God's way. Put off selfishness. Put on humility. For it's God who works in you. We are in Christ. So let's live like it. Let's pray. Father, we need your help for this. We are as selfish as they come. We fight and we quarrel. We want our own way. This endeavor to put off ourself and to put on your mind, it's so hard. But Lord, we're so thankful that you have not left us to our own devices. You have empowered us and it Uh, by your spirit, and your spirit lives within us, convicts us of wrong, and leads us into righteousness. Lord, help us to be sensitive to his leading. Help us to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we need you. We need you for help, for life, And it's in your son's name that we pray for help in life. Amen.